This episode is brought to you by Awesome CX by Transcom. Awesome CX provides high-touch, personalized customer experience services to consumer brands of any size. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the show. This is episode 172, and today I sat down with Vanessa Pham, the co-founder and CEO of Omsom. Omsom is a proud and loud Asian food brand founded by first-generation Vietnamese sisters and co-founders Vanessa and Kim Pham. Starting with the release of their Rip and Pour sauce packets three years ago, Omsom recently launched their new saucy noodles as a luxe convenient meal solution cooked in as little as four minutes. Vanessa shares her story from growing up outside Boston with parents that were refugees from Vietnam to attending Harvard and working at Bain to starting Omsom with her sister after being inspired by the 2016 election and interest in building something that would shift culture. She talks about how her dad tried to escape Vietnam seven times, how she felt enormous pressure to honor her parents' sacrifices by making them proud until she had a formative phone call with her dad, and how she bootstrapped the business for the first year by offering SAT tutoring services to help pay for her rent. If you like what you're hearing on the Steroid to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe, leave us an awesome review, and check us out at steroidtoceo.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Vanessa, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm super excited to hear your story and building Omsom. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Lee. Excited to share, you know, everything that is Omsom and everything that Kim, myself, and the team have built. I'm super excited. You know, I I think I discovered your brand on the shelves of Whole Foods. There's little packets of sauce. And I was like, oh, this is so great. I don't have to commit to like an entire jar. I can just get a little packet. It feels low lift. I can just try it. My husband's allergic to garlic, so it's so hard to find sauces. And I was like, ah, there's one without garlic. <laughs> I forget which one it is. It's like the salmon one. I put it on salmon. Yes. It, it tastes amazing. The yuzu miso glaze. Yeah. Yes, that's the one. It's delicious. It's absolutely amazing. And then I know you have these new noodles that came out, which are really good. But yes, super excited to hear your story. So... Let's start from the very beginning, I guess. Tell us about your childhood growing up. What kind of kid were you? What was it like growing up? Yeah, so I'm Vanessa. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Omsom. Kim is my sister and she is, she doesn't really like titles, but I would say she's kind of a chief brand officer and co-founder. And we're both the daughters of Vietnamese refugees. That plays a huge part in our story and why we built Omsom. We grew up in a suburb of Boston, like 30 minutes south of Boston, that was actually 98.5% white. So we were pretty much the only people of color there. And yeah, that was a really, you know, formative experience, I think, for both of us. 
for both of us, we felt very, I think, you know, out of place and at times like othered in that community. And so a lot of what we went on to do and who we went on to be in some ways was born out of that experience and a response to that. And that's why I think even Amsom, like now when people see the brand after hearing that story, they're like, oh, like that makes so much sense, right? Amsom in Vietnamese means rowdy, rambunctious, riotous, and our ethos is all about being proud and loud. So in some ways, Amsom being this really kind of like reclaiming of our narratives and telling our stories loudly and proudly is our way of pushing back on that initial experience that we had in that small town outside of Boston. Nice. I love it. Rebellious. And so in what <laughs> yes. ways as a kid, were you rebellious? Can you tell some like stories of you and your sister as kids and what it was like? Well, funnily enough, my sister was probably somebody that lived that out since the early days of when she felt that kind of othering. Her instinct was to say, you know what, if you're going to reject me, I'm actually going to reject you first. So she wore stilettos every single day in sixth grade to school just to like wow. make a point. She had like a goth phase. She like dyed her hair red. And even today, she's very vocal about, I think, parts of her that make her unique and uniquely her. She's a kink and fetish educator on TikTok with over 100,000 followers, like on the side of Amsam. I saw her but, Instagram uh, yeah. recently. Yeah. She talks a lot about sex positivity, this BDSM, which I don't know anything about, but it's like fascinating <laughs> to learn and kind of hear her perspective. And yeah, she's very vocal about it. It's very interesting. I'd love to hear how that's affected the brand in any way, but it sounds like she's been very vocal and strong for, I guess, as a kid, right? So since the sixth grade wearing high heels. Yeah, exactly. Since the very, yeah, since she was like, you know, young kid, teenager and beyond. And then on my side, I kind of had the opposite reaction initially. And actually building Amsam was the point in my life where building a proud and loud brand was when I actually learned to actually be more true to myself, be more in my skin and be more authentic about who I actually am. For most of my life before that, I responded to the feeling of being othered by saying, okay, well, if you're going to reject me, then I will just try to be the very best at anything that I do. I will try to be beyond reproach and then I'll finally be enough. So that's how I responded to it. So I was like trying to run for all the positions in school clubs and I was getting straight A's and I was trying to just overachieve on every dimension. That was my way of responding. Who's older? Which sibling is older? She's older. Ah, yeah. I think that ha kind of happens. You know, I'm yeah. the older sibling with my sister. And I definitely feel like the older sibling, if they are this like trailblazing personality or they go on their own path, mm. the younger sibling, I feel like kind of tries to, well, my sister like try to make up for the fact that I didn't go to college. I didn't finish college. And I think she felt a lot mm. of pressure to finish because I didn't. Mm. Right. So it's kind of like mm. being a little bit more of the opposite because that realm maybe was taken of being like so out there and you were like, okay, I'm going to be over there and do this version of myself. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, as a young kid, I, I don't even, I mean, now in hindsight, right. And after doing therapy and all these things, I have all this insight into how I was and why I was the way I was. But you know, back then I was just responding to these inputs and, you know, these experiences and sensations that I was having of like, oh, this makes me feel bad or this makes me scared. And so I'm going to do this or that. And, you know, I think it was just me kind of adapting to my environment and how I was being received. Yeah. What was your um, dream growing up? What did you want to be when you grew up? 
Honestly, my dream for most of my life has been to honor my parents and their sacrifices. Nothing has been more motivating to me than that in my whole life. Very intentionally, my relationship to that goal has evolved because I think for a lot of my life, it was it was almost like used against me because it was like, in my mind, I would say, oh, well, like this will never be enough because their sacrifices and everything they gave me is just so much bigger than anything I can ever achieve. My parents were refugees from Vietnam. So right. they had, you know, a lot of hardship and a lot of struggle. I mean, they had to leave everything behind and, you know, come to the America. And so being raised on those stories, I felt like it was just this like endless, the biggest shoes to fill. What were some of the biggest things that you felt were really hard for them? In their journey? Yeah, their sacrifices when you talk about, you know, them being a refugee for the people that don't really understand what that really means for someone to go through. Yeah. So, I mean, there's so much there, but like at a high level or like maybe just some like tidbits. My dad tried to escape from Vietnam like seven different times and like failed multiple times. So like had to go to jail for the times where he wasn't able to escape successfully. And then there's all the stories of what it was like growing up with like not enough food. And of course, there's the stories of when he finally did make it to America and, you know, not having a, a support network, like navigating. Right. Knowing no one. This country right. with no resource, like with yeah. very few resources, like, yeah, just the stories of sadness or loneliness, right? Like those are stories that I would, I have been hearing ever since I was a kid. My parents are profound people. They're deeply joyful, perhaps because they lived through what they did. Yeah. Wow. Escaping seven times and going to jail. I mean, that's that's a lot. He really wanted to get out of there, you know? Uh, <laughs> yes, without out, a get doubt. Out. <laughs> Paris, you're like, it's a lot of effort. But that's an amazing story. And I imagine growing up with parents that have gone through so much, I can see how that motivates you. That's incredible. And so it sounds like that's kind of like what you wanted to do is you wanted to just find a way to honor them, right? And so... Talk to us, I guess, about, you know, some of your early jobs growing up. What were some of those early jobs that you had? Well, along that same vein of I'm going to try to be beyond reproach if you're going to reject me, that's pretty much what led me up until I finally, like, I think broke through to a different level of consciousness when I started Amsam. Because before that, it was like, okay, what's the hardest thing to achieve that's most externally validated. Let me run after that thing, you know? So really, that, yeah. So I went to Harvard for undergrad and then I worked at Bain as a management consultant after Harvard and the acceptance rate at Bain from Harvard was like 1% or less than 1%. So it was like, let me just like find the most selective thing. And that'll be what makes my parents proud. I think after a couple, (laughs) it, it certainly did. It certainly did. And I have no regrets. I learned a lot on that journey. And I, you know, I embraced every step that I took along the way. But who I am today, I think, is guided by very different values and a very different understanding of of what I want and what I hope to do in the world and, and what even my parents want for me. A lot that has evolved as well. What did your parents want for you? So I actually have this very formative experience of I think like the first year of building Ansem before we were launching and we were raising a pre-seed round and it was really, really hard. I remember I called my dad crying on a street in the East Village and I actually told him a lot of what I just told you about like, 
this is what I'm motivated by. I just want to do right by you and mom. I am so scared. You know, I'm going to fail. This is like so hard and I'm going to let you down. And in many more words than that, that's essentially what I said. And we had this incredible conversation where he actually heard me and clarified for me that that is not what he wants for me or like, that's not how he defines that. He told me he was like, you are a deeply kind person. You always show up to try to like make the best decisions for yourself and those that you love. You know, you are a very hardworking, like he pointed out these things that he loved about me and said, that's what makes me proud. And I just remember I was like crying on this East Village sidewalk. It was such a healing conversation and I'll never forget it. That's amazing. It sounds like a really good dad. <laughs> He's an incredible, <laughs> yeah. incredible dad. I have, we are so lucky. We have really amazing parents. That's awesome. And that I'm sure took a lot of pressure off. He's like, you don't owe me anything. You already right. are everything that makes me proud. You're like, whew. Oh. <laughs> okay. It's the start of releasing yourself from those types of pressures and expectations. But I think at that point, it gets you started. But then you also have to confront how much of it is in your own head and how much of it you're just attached to. And it's not actually like you. I'm attributing it to him. But how much of it is just like my own ego, for example. So there's a lot of work that happens on the founder journey that's like deeply personal, I think, or at yeah. least in my experience. A hundred percent agree with you. It has to be personal. It's a personal and professional journey of growth, hundred percent. And I think yes. you can only, at the rate of which a founder grows personally, is very, it's like aligned with the growth of the company, right? Because if you're not growing, it's really hard to be a good leader. And so I think those things 100%. are end. Yes, very much so. So you kind of like unleashed this, this sounds like a pivotal moment for you to transition from, I've got to honor my family, I've got to do all these things for them, them, them. And then it, that was kind of released. So how did you go from Bain, Harvard, Bain, you know, trying to do those paths that kind of prove that honor for your parents to starting Ensemble? Yeah. I mean, there were two parts of it. One was that my sister, who did not ascribe to those same, she was not attached to those same beliefs, had already been taking a ton of risk in her career since she was 16, before even people had started their careers. She was like knocking on the doors of early stage companies before startups were sexy. And mm -hmm. she was like, can I work for you? So she's been in startups and venture capital ever since she was 16. And I, I think by the time she was like, 24. She was already Forbes 30 under 30 in Europe, in VC, flying around the world, speaking at conferences. And that's when I was working at Bain and I was pissed. <laughs> I was just like, why is this paying off for her so much? And I think I was just so inspired by her appetite for risk and the platform that she was creating. Like she was able to actually change the way people think and it was at that point that I think I started to toy around with the idea of like, what would it look like if I took more risk in my career, especially in service of building a platform for myself. I think as a Vietnamese American woman, that opportunity seemed so important. There's just, you know, not enough, I think, Vietnamese American women that are seen as thought leaders. And I just, I felt really called by that. And then I think the second piece was honestly after like the 2016 election, Kim and myself really wanted to build something that could influence culture and narratives and dialogue at a national level. 
I just didn't feel good going into work every day and like making slides and just feeling like they were just getting handed over to this client. And I just didn't feel like I was making like any impact that touched my values. So yeah, at that point, I decided to have a conversation with Kim about what would it look like if we started something together? And she was like, I've actually been waiting for this day. Uh, I like, yeah, she was like, I've been waiting for this day. Like, let's do it. I'm, I'm ready. Really? So, That's crazy. Yeah. Were you, it's I mean, crazy. You guys never talked about doing something together before? Never. And then all of a sudden she's like, I've been waiting for you to say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why didn't she say something to you? I think she just want, like wanted me to be ready for it when mm. it's because I was the one that wasn't ready. I think she knew she was ready, but you know, I was still running after all these different things. And so finally, I think she was just being patient. <laughs> That's amazing. And so why food and sauces? How did that come about? Yeah, I remember the super early days. So I was still at Bain. She was still working in BC when we started ideating on this because we were going to bootstrap for a while. And we also were really young. I was 24, I believe. And she was 26. So we were just like, okay, we have to do like nights and weekends for a while to just like figure this out. And during that time, I remember our very first brainstorming exercise. She like came over, we got our notebooks and it was on one side, all the like missions that we would want to drive or potentially touch through our business. We we're extremely motivated by mission, the both of us. So that was the first question we ever asked ourselves. Like, what mission do we want to put ourselves against? And then the second area was like, in what industries could we possibly do that in? And for both of us, it was like the same thing at the top. On the side of mission, it was around educating on the multitudes within Asian America and and frankly, making this country a better place to be an Asian American. And then the second bucket we both just had like food at the very top of our list. Food for us has been such an incredibly meaningful part of our lives and, and, and a way for us to connect to our culture and our identities, especially before we were ready to really express that into the world. And where we were trying to almost like minimize that to fit into our hometown. We could not deny the food, right? <laughs> like that in the household, that was really a really important way for us to engage with our identities and then eventually share it with others when we came to be more proud and more comfortable with our culture. That's awesome. So you realize, okay, we're aligned on mission. We're aligned on, we want to do something in food. how do you come up with sauce? Why sauce to start? Yeah. Yeah. So through to my background at Bain, I decided to do a ton of research at the very beginning of our journey. We did a bunch of research on the consumer side and then on the industry side because we knew very little. And so on the consumer side, we surveyed 200 people. We interviewed 100 people on the phone and we watched 50 people cook in their kitchens to kind of understand like the current state of Asian cooking and Asian food in the US. And our learnings there were many fold. One was that credibility, cultural credibility and cultural integrity were very important to the consumer today. And then the second piece was around product, which was and, and value prop, which was that folks across the country know and love Asian flavors. They have them in restaurants. Restaurants have done the heavy lifting of educating palates. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're ready for it to come into the home, but they're kind of nervous. They basically know how to like stir fry chicken, but they don't know how to land the flavors, right? So it's not necessarily right. like the cooking part. It's really getting all the ingredients and more importantly, getting the flavors right. 
And even for first and second generation Asian Americans, we heard that too. They were like, yeah, I'll like call my mom, ask for the recipe. And she'll be like, oh, I don't use like tablespoons. You just like put the right amount of fish sauce. So like that problem was one that we're like, oh, we can solve that. We can have people's back on flavor and give them flexibility for their dietary preferences or restrictions. So that's why we ended up with the starters or like cooking sauces in a packet. And then on the industry side, we spoke to founders, operators, investors in the space. And there's a lot that kind of went into why we chose the packet. Ultimately, part of it was like the shipping economics of the packets being much lighter than like glass. And then also a lot of consumers having the experience of like buying a bottle, using it once, like a bottle of sauce, using it once and then losing it in the back of their fridge and then like finding it again Mm -hmm. and be like, oh, this is like kind of old and it's like kind of crusty. So I'm going to throw it away. Totally. We wanted like those fresh packets that, you know, it's just like kind of like taco seasoning, like that type of use case. Or if you buy a sauce, this has happened to me a ton of times, like peanut sauce, probably the most basic sauce, right? Yeah. And and it's amazing how so many different brands do it differently. And then you're like, right, this one's like a little weird and spicy. This one's doesn't even it's got like some coconut flavor in it. You know, you're like, what is happening? I just want peanut sauce. And then you're just like, you have it once. It's in this big bottle. You don't touch it again. It's so wasteful. And I think what you guys did with these packets just makes it so easy to try new flavors. And I just found that so much nicer to be able to try it. And it's also portioned, I think, for one serving, right? So yeah, Yeah, one pound of meat or protein, plant-based protein or veggies. Yeah. So it's fresh. It's not like sitting in a bottle. (laughs) Yes. You know, in the back of your fridge. Yeah. Once a week, you're like, you know, not getting a lot of use out of it. So that's amazing. And obviously from a shipping perspective, really smart. Okay, cool. So you, you're you like, okay, we're going to do these packets of sauce. Let's lean into that. And I think you guys have like four flavors of the packets. Yes, we actually, so we have seven on our website, but we have four in Whole Foods yeah. nationally. And then we're also in Target, I believe with three of them. Yeah. So four are kind of like retail ready. What's the best seller? Like what's the biggest one everybody loves? So actually, several of them are just neck and neck. And then there's a couple stragglers. <laughs> Always. Yes. Um, but the ones we brought to retail were the best sellers from D to C. So it's really nice to have that kind of like e-commerce learnings that we can take into retail. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Customer service and call centers are rarely topics that people get excited about, but Awesome CX is simply different. Their inclusive culture rooted in wellness and fun means that their teams are encouraged to be their best selves personally and professionally by providing them with everything from mental health and healthcare resources to career development. And regardless of the size of your business, Awesome CX is uniquely positioned to support you throughout your growth. They work with some of the fastest growing startups like FabFitFun, Carbon38, Lettuce Grow, Mudwater, and so many more. Want to see it to believe it? Just email me directly at lee, L-E-E, at stairwaytoceo.com to request to join one of their coffee chats where you can meet with their amazing team and witness the agent engagement yourself. You'll be so impressed. I can't wait for you to learn more about Awesome CX to make your brand's customer experience awesome. Thank you so much to our incredible sponsors for supporting the Stairway to CEO podcast. Now let's get back to the show. So what were the next steps after you kind of aligned on this research? You did some surveys. You're like, all right, we're going to do sauce packets. 
What was the next steps to start fleshing out the concept and and get it into shelves or launch online? Like, what was your process? I'm sure, you had to raise money at some point. What's the timeline kind of look like here? Yeah. So at that point, we basically started running against standing up as much as we could. So that meant finding the chefs that we wanted to work with, because for all of our products, we partner with iconic Asian chefs of that background who are experts in that cuisine. So building relationships with the chefs, then developing the products, then sourcing like that whole bringing the products to life then sourcing the ingredients and going to manufacturing. We were started with a co-manufacturer at the same time we started building the visual identity. We knew we would eventually probably have to fundraise. So we were like, okay, well, if we don't have a visual identity, investors aren't even gonna give us the time of day. So we have to build a beautiful brand. So we started doing that. And at that point, Kim poured her whole life savings as a 26 year old. We didn't have generational wealth you know, to pull from. So right. Kim poured her life savings into the visual identity and then the early R&D work. That was all that we could really do with the money that we had. And then I used my life savings to just pay my rent and feed myself. <laughs> and then those were like the two biggest focus areas. And, and then once we got far enough along with the product where we were actually talking to co-manufacturers, we're actually figuring out what type of scale we would need to get to. That's when we were like, okay, we need to like raise some capital, kind of like a pre-seed round to like make this a reality to start buying ingredients to like hit our MOQs and our packaging and all of that. So yeah, that's kind of what we started on. But there's, I mean, a lot more that happened too. We actually completely rebranded before we even launched the brand, which is like a whole other story. (laughs) Yeah. And at what point did you guys decide to go full-time from nights to weekends to quitting the jobs and really going all in on it? Yeah. So pretty early actually. So the first story I told you was us brainstorming on a piece of the paper. Mm-hmm. As soon as we had the concept for the business, we both went full-time immediately. It was pretty risky. Kind of scary, right? I mean, you guys don't <laughs> have a cushion at all. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You're living in New York City, right? Most expensive place. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, we're just going to quit our jobs and dive in on this. Why did you guys decide to take that risk? You must have had obviously a lot of conviction that money would be coming in soon, right? How did you guys think through that? Why did you decide that that was a good time to do that? I appreciate the question. I think it's giving a lot more credit to you know our 24 and 26-year-old selves more than we probably deserve. We did not think that far ahead. We're just like, all right, we're doing the damn thing. Like, let's go. And, and like, that was that. And if we need money, we'll just go and get a job, basically. Well, both of us actually, we should say both of us did find ways to make ends meet before we were able to pay ourselves at all because we bootstrapped for like a year and we didn't pay ourselves at all. Mm-hmm. So Kim was doing some consulting work for VCs to kind of like make ends meet. And then I was doing SAT tutoring, like resume editing, college application support, like literally sourcing my clients through Craigslist. And that's how we like paid our rent during this phase. That's awesome. Craigslist <laughs> is uh, kind of the best. I mean, Yeah, I mean, it worked for me. I have no regrets. I'm very thankful for Craigslist. (laughs) Especially back in that day, you know. Totally. How many years ago was this? This was in 2019. Yeah. So 2019, you guys are trying to get this off the ground. And then obviously COVID comes in 2020. So Mm -hmm. was that like just when you were trying to launch or what? How did you guys navigate that? Yes, it was quite literally when we were trying to launch. And it was so scary. I remember, oh my gosh, I just remember the feeling that I had in my body when I like started to find out what was happening. It was just like 
straight fight or flight response, you know, just like, oh my gosh, we've been working at this for a year. What's going to happen is it's just going to flop because everybody's talking about COVID when like, obviously extremely important thing to talk about, but also like we've been working on this for a year. So at that point, we actually were getting, you know, feedback from mentors and investors alike saying, hey, like you shouldn't launch. Nobody's going to have bandwidth to hear about a new brand. Like this is a, you know, a national crisis. Like you should just go down to like turtle mode, like, you know, pull back on expenses and just like ride it out, which I'm really glad we didn't because riding it out, it would have been years. Right. But I think, right. <laughs> wow. The long but turtle I think, mode. Two years of turtle exactly. mode. Yeah. Not good. But I think ultimately what we ended up doing, I remember writing like a pros and cons analysis and sharing it with Kim of like, this is how I'm thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And ultimately where we landed was what we're building is actually in service of giving people a sense of home, a sense of joy, like in a hard time, they're actually going to want to engage with a brand like ours. Like what we stand for is relevant and timely. And then beyond that, people are going to be stuck in their homes. They're going to be cooking. Right. So like, let's just launch. And so we did. And I'm really glad we did. So what were the first couple weeks like? You know, you're launching during this crazy time and probably trying to get media attention or get out there with influencers or what was some of your strategy in trying to launch during such a crazy time? Yeah, I think it was very much all about telling our story very authentically and cutting through the noise with the impact of that story. And it actually really resonated. We had like three national press features on the day of launch and we sold out within 72 hours our wow. launch day, yeah. So it, it went really well. We were so excited to see that happen. And then from there, you know, I think we continue to be able to build like a really strong community around us. And there was kind of this flywheel that we created by building and fostering of community that understood our values, saw what we like stood for, and that really resonated with them. And then press was kind of observing this and seeing that like, oh, this brand just launched and there's already a community forming around them. Like people care what's going on there. And then that just led to like more press and then the the community growing. And so honestly, press influencer and community building was our real focus for the first two years. And so what advice do you have around influencer and community building and press? Did you go with an agency that had a really big track record for press? Did you do influencer in-house? How did you build that out? And how do you think about community? Like, what are the ways that you built this out? Yeah. So my first piece of advice around this is that this strategy does not make sense for every brand. And the ROI on it is highly variable and can be kind of binary, honestly. Like you either kind of cut through the noise and like strike that chord with press or you don't. And I think that's really hard because it's not like a cheap endeavor to like, you know, go after some of those opportunities. But I think what you really need to ask yourself is, is my story and my brand story really authentic because consumers bullshit meter is just like higher than ever. And same with press. And then beyond that, does it parlay into broader dialogues that are happening at a national level? If it doesn't, I think it's a lot harder to imagine a world in which, you know, you really become a brand that is, you know, given a big platform and is featured because, you know, what often happens is journalists are thinking, what do I want to write about? 
okay, here's my topic. This is going to resonate with my audience. And what are the brands that make sense to tell that story? And so I think at Ensemble, we took that swing because from day one, it was all about the mission. It was very much about the culture and the stories that we were telling. And when I think about Omsam, I think about storytelling. Like that really is one of our core competencies and we do it every single day. Yeah, that's awesome. I love how you say, how does it fit into a national level conversation? So how did fundraising go? I know you raised a pre-seed round, seed round. Talk to us about some of your challenges in fundraising. Yeah, our journey fundraising has evolved a lot over the years. And certainly like the first raise is, was the raise where there was a lot less early stage investment in food. Certainly the pre-launch food investment was very hard to come by. Back then, believe it or not, I got a lot of investors telling me that Asian food is niche, which has very much changed. That's like totally 180 in today's day and age, which is very exciting to see. I mean, I think everybody loves Asian food. Like, how can it be niche, right? That makes no I know. sense. I mean, this was, I guess in 2019, people really thought that because we got that left I and mean, right. I would have been like, dude, have you ever had Pad Thai? <laughs> like, I mean, come yeah. on. Have you, have you ever had Chinese food before? Like, what are you talking about? It's like so shocking. But I mean, that was the frustration for us. It's like, we, we would hear that and get the nose because of that very reason. They're like, this is too niche. Asian food is, you know, too niche. So that wow. was, you know, a big obstacle for us initially. And honestly, it was like getting in front of the right people. We spoke to so many investors that are not comfortable with food and CPG, because as we've learned, it is a unique beast of an industry. And it is a very challenging industry. And the economics of it are very different than tech. And so we've all learned that the hard way. And, you know, I'm glad that those investors said no to us when they did. But that was really the network that we had because Kim worked in B2B software and service, right? So she was like, yeah. let's tap my network. And we were pitching people that were like, what? Sauce? I know. They're like, we invest in consumer. Oh, wait, no, we invest in consumer tech, actually. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. They were like, how is this going to be like, you know, the next Uber? And you're like, what? I'm, <laughs> we're co-packing sauces. <laughs> but they're lightweight to ship. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's awesome. And so what are some of the biggest challenges that you faced in building this business? I know, you know, Silicon Valley Bank collapse. I've seen some of your videos on the internet being all over the news about your open letter. Can you kind of talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you faced in building the business? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So many. I think the biggest ones though do fall under almost like kind of the personal realm of like how you show up to the inevitable just challenges that you'll face within the business because like that is why this journey is so grueling and like when you hear founders be like oh my gosh like this is not for the faint of heart or like i know so many founders that after their journey has kind of concluded they're finally ready to share that they struggled with depression for years right like during their journey and so like you see that because of you know i think ultimately how you experience and, and feel those challenges that are inevitable within the business, which are many. So I can speak to those too. But I dedicate like so much of my time and, and mind share and emotional energy into evolving my worldviews and my relationship to myself and what my inner world feels like so that I can navigate this journey with grace 
with trust and with like belief and conviction, right? Like those are so important to like getting the job done. And so I, I have found like that to be one of the heaviest lifts, but I'm going to be a way better person for it. And I know it, I think about one day I'm going to be a mother probably. I'll be a way better mother because I had this journey now. I like know that in my bones. So it feels worth it, but it is like not, yeah, it's not light. It's like a lot of time and energy. So what are some ways that you do work on yourself? Do you work with a coach? Do you work with a therapist as well? Do you meditate? Like what are some of the things that you do to work on yourself? Truly all of the above. (laughs) I have worked with therapists for years. I've worked with coaches for years. I have close mentors. I have advisors. Like the support network is really strong. I have a very core to my life, like practice of journaling, my journaling practice. Like I journal for hours every week because I see it as an investment in building a relationship to myself. And I do anything that I can to cultivate a, like a safer inner world. Cause sometimes the external world doesn't really feel safe. Like if fundraising is going wrong, or if one of our production runs just went off the rails and we're losing you know, tens of thousands of packets or something, which has happened, can I go inside and find like some safety and calm? So I, I work a lot on that. And some of it's like tactical stuff. Like I really love massage. I really love working out. I certainly meditate, all those things. Oh, I love dancing. Kim and I love dancing. We're like late night Brooklyn girls. But a lot of it too is like reading and journaling to evolve my way of being in the world and and to get in touch with like my nervous system and like really understand how my nervous system is guiding me and my actions. And I know that you guys just launched these saucy noodles. Let's talk about how you went from the sauces to now adding noodles into these boxes with sauce. It's a, they're really good too. I'm like, oh, I mean, it's <laughs> like it's like a modern like ramen noodle, right? It's yeah, like really good. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Thank you so much. I'm so glad to hear that. We are so thrilled. We launched them just like a month and a half ago, so it's been really incredible to see them out in the world, and we've been working really hard on them for like over a year. But yeah, basically, we learned a lot. I think one of the things that we were realizing was that for many folks who know and love Amsam and actually are part of our community, a lot of them wanted a more convenient way to try Amsam flavors and use them regularly in their lives. And so while with the sauces, they're very convenient, you need 15 minutes and a pound of protein people wanted even more convenience and frankly, like a full meal solution, right? Where maybe you don't have to buy those fresh ingredients. And so with that feedback and really thinking about driving increased convenience and accessibility while still having those like loud and proud flavors that we're known for, that's how the saucy noodles came to fruition. They're ready in four minutes. They can be done in the microwave. All of those pieces were so important for us to nail to like offer this kind of like solution that we wanted to for your like weeknight lunch or dinner. It's like perfect for college kids and busy moms, you know, it's like the perfect yeah. thing to cook. We've been making it just as like a side for something like as if you yeah. would make mac and cheese as like a side to something else. I did that a few times with the new. A hundred percent. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, it adds some really good flavor. It's like actually the same use occasion as like a craft mac and cheese, except yeah. for it's even faster because it's in four minutes versus like, I think, you know, like Annie's is in eight minutes or something like that. So it's even faster than like a mac and cheese box. 
but the flavors are so robust because it's the same kind of really just like thoughtful and complex sauces that we're known for versus like a mac and cheese powder. Exactly. So how's that been going? I know that launched recently. I think you guys are in Whole Foods. What other retailers are you guys in and how's the launch been going? Oh my gosh, the launch has been so incredible. I've been just so happy to see our work paying off. The team is thrilled. Yeah, we launched at the beginning of May. We threw a rave to celebrate the launch, which was so much fun. And it's been incredibly strong. Food and Wine called them the best instant noodles on the market. They've been on CBS Mornings. They've been on the Today Show. And we just went national with Whole Foods like in the last two weeks. And we've been seeing really great performance. So yeah, just super excited. I think I saw the clip of the Today Show when all the people were, they were like, the hosts were eating the noodles with the chopsticks and they're like having a hard time because the noodles are so long <laughs> and they just like kept slurping them up. It was hilarious. Um, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Eating on national television is not easy. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, if I was hosting, I'd be so annoyed that they didn't cut these noodles for me a little bit more, you know? <laughs> It's so funny because the length of the noodles was one of the things that our chefs that we work with were so excited about Mm. because I don't know if consumers care as much, but certainly chefs are like, if the noodles are broken when they arrive, we don't want it. So like Mm. the length of the noodle was something that they were like, so pleased about. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. I think it's great for dinner and great for eating and probably not great for having, you know, to eat on TV, but. (laughs) Right, right, right. Amazing. And so what's something that's kind of shocked you in this process? This is your first company. Being an entrepreneur is really tough. We've talked about a few of those tough times, but looking back at your journey a little bit, what's something that just shocked you so much? Like you didn't think that would happen. You didn't, you know, when you thought about building a business, you weren't expecting that. Gosh, well, the biggest thing that has continued to shock me is that there's no such thing as a right answer at pretty much anything in business and certainly in startups. And I'll elaborate, I think coming out of Bain, that was very much a belief or like an underpinning to the way that we worked together was that there was a right answer and we just had to find it. And like whoever found it did the best work. Mm-hmm. It was like very kind of black and white in that way. And it helped keep a very well-run organization moving very efficiently and like helping people collaborate under that same understanding. As it relates to building a startup, there have been decisions that we've made that depending on the time window that you look back at it, will tell you a very different story as to whether or not it was the right answer. So like we do something immediately after it doesn't get the response that we want, we pick the wrong answer. A year out, we look back and we actually say, oh, well, it didn't lead to that thing, but it actually led to this other thing. And that is actually better for the business long-term. And like, I'm really glad we did that. With people that we've worked with, that's been the case. We bring somebody on as like a contractor, short-term. It feels like they're you know fixing everything. And then you zoom out like six months and suddenly you realize like, oh, there's actually all these gaps and it wasn't like a fit. So I have just time and again seen things play out or like very experienced people like investors or whatever tell us this is how other companies have done it this is like the right way to do it and then say we try it and it just doesn't resonate with our community right so it's really important to understand there's so many it's like an art it's not a science building a business there's 
so many different ways you can approach it. There's so many different things you can be optimizing for. And so it's, I think it's more important to think about what are you actually trying to achieve? What is important to your brand, your story and your journey and your trajectory? And how can you make the best decisions you can in service of all that context? But there's no like silver bullet playbooks I don't really believe in. I think it's more of an art than I, I would have thought back when I was at Bain and, you know, I was sitting in Excel and just like looking at cells and, and tabs. You know, that's so interesting that you say that. And I, I kind of agree. And I think a lot of people like to think they have the playbook or yeah, you know, yeah, they know how it goes down and things just change so much. Technology changes, market shifts. It's like, how is there a playbook? And brands are so different in their own way and they have their own communities, like you're saying. So I can see how it is more of an art than a science. But I think just maybe it's human to want to think that there's a formula for everything. Oh, for sure. That was one of my quickest unlearnings at the beginning because I think I found so much safety and like comfort in this idea of like, okay, well, we just need to get to the right answer. Then we'll have done the right thing and we can feel good and I can go to bed at night. Sitting in the discomfort of like, we're probably not going to know if this is the right decision for like, or like the closest to right decision for like a year. And like, we're just going to have to go with it. And we'll just like, see what happens. Or we'll be working towards this thing for so long. And who knows, like, a lot of that discomfort of that uncertainty was like, yeah, it's just a big learning at the beginning of this journey for me. It sounds like when you were saying when you, you try something that doesn't work right away, but you give it some time. It ended up working maybe like in six months to a year. Most people would have cut it off and said, okay, it's not working. Let's do something else. What's an example that you have of something that that you're referring to when you say, oh, we tried this and it didn't really take off right away, but I'm so glad we kept going with it. One example of this is our Krapau, which is our Thai chili garlic sauce that is national at Whole Foods. Initially, we got a lot of feedback that it was like really spicy and that that would not be accessible and that would turn a lot of people away. And at that time, we felt like that was a product development miss, right? Like we overestimated it. We thought people were ready and now we're getting this feedback. Once we brought it to retail, we didn't change the formula before then. Once we brought it to retail, it actually is doing very well in retail and performing just alongside the other SKUs, if not better at times, depending on when you slice and dice it. Wow. So yeah, at times it's been our best seller in retail and it is really spicy. Wow. Right. And so you were told, oh, it's too spicy. It's not going to do well. And maybe a lot of other entrepreneurs would have been like, okay, let's take that feedback and change it. But you guys were like, no, let's keep it. Let's see what happens. And you kind of let the consumers speak for themselves. Yeah. That's awesome. So before we wrap up here, what's some final advice you have for aspiring entrepreneurs or those in the trenches right now? And then what's next for Omsom? Yes. So my advice would be to continue to show more of who you really are in the journey. And I don't mean that in the like founder-led brand way, like not externally, like to your community. I, I think that's a deeply personal decision and doesn't make sense for every brand. But I mean, in the work that you do, I think there's a lot of people that really separate who they are and don't feel like there's space for their true personality in the workplace, to their teams, to their investors. And actually the people that I feel like 
who we work best with and who enjoy working with us the most is like folks that also meet us there. And I have found there's so many benefits and like, I'm very sensitive. I'm very heart forward. And I just continue to bring that into my journey as a founder, whether that's like, you know, speaking with you or doing press interviews or even talking to investors. I I try to be exactly who I am. And anytime that I've actually purposefully like suppressed that, it has come back to bite me like in a meaningful way. So yeah, I just like really encourage that if it feels authentic to you, like I, I think leaning into it, there's so much superpower that can be unlocked in that. I agree with you. And what do you mean by coming back to bite you? What's an example of that? I mean, there have been times where I've approached negotiations with like serious aggression and that has felt, you know, not authentic to me, but I didn't know what I was really doing and just didn't land well. I didn't get what I wanted and it wasn't a comfortable experience for myself or for others. Yeah. Negotiating is a tough thing, right? Because you want to be tough. You want to be taken seriously, especially as a female, just in general, Yeah, you know, when you're like first time founder trying to be like, don't mess with me. I know my shit, you know, and then, yeah, sometimes it doesn't land well. Right. And you're like, wait, but that's not who I am. Actually, actually, I'm like really nice. And (laughs) I'm just trying to get a good deal for my company. All right. (laughs) Yes. Yes, exactly. So, um, and then what's next for Awesome? What's next? Oh my gosh. Well, as I mentioned, we just brought our saucy noodles into every Whole Foods. We will be exclusive with them through September. But then after that, we will be in more and more stores. So that's a huge focus of ours, just continuing to bring the saucy noodles to more people um, and into more, more doors. So yeah, that's really what we're we're super focused on. Amazing. Well, I love what you guys are doing. It's such a cool, fun, loud and proud brand. It's really awesome to see uh, Thank you. your amazing success in building this brand and uh, wishing you continued success as you expand into retail. And thanks so much for joining us today and sharing your awesome story. Oh my gosh, of course. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.